0: Episode number 47, Gillian Gallo. Alright, cut to edge of stage. Great. Alright, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. House to half. House out. Lightning keys is one,
1: two, ten,
0: Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with set and costume designer Gillian Gallo. Now, it seems like a year ago now. Well, actually, it was a year ago now. This is how I record these things. And Gillian and I spoke about her early career at, yes, the Blythe Festival... And the Stratford Festival, surprising, at the beginning of what has become a very successful career. You know, I will be interviewing people outside of Ontario, I swear to God, (laughs) but this is just what's convenient right now at my time in life, so uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this interview with Jillian. She's a remarkable designer and has a lot of interesting things to say about her early career and her life in the theatre. Our conversation took place back in July of 2017 at my former home in Toronto. To support this and future conversations with fascinating theatre designers, please consider supporting us at patreon.com. Now, in the meantime, we'll keep it very short and sweet, so please enjoy this interview with designer Gillian Gallo.
2: From her start as the Carps PA at Blythe Festival in the early 2000s, Gillian Gallo has risen to be a A-list designer in Canada, designing across the country. Uh, for the last uh, close to 15 years now. Uh, and now she joins me on the title block. Welcome to the title block. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Uh, and thank you for coming to my home. This is very convenient for me, rather than running around uh, to everywhere else to uh, to do these uh, interviews. Um, you started in Blythe, but uh, how did you... Do you want to take me through that story? Because you, were, you had just begun at York University when you were the PA at the Blythe Festival, yes. correct? So how did yeah. you get to the... Blythe Festival. Um, first of all, where would you grow up?
1: Okay, I grew, um, I grew up mostly in Oakville, Ontario. Um, I was a small child in Houston, Texas, but right. we'll ignore that part of my history. And uh, I grew up in Oakville. I went to high school that had a very strong drama program, uh, particularly with the Sears Drama Festival, and just had an interest. And so I had a teacher who actually recognized design, which was unusual. So we had to do a maquette for a show, and I, I did a design. And, um, that's
2: crazy. A maquette in high school. Yeah.
1: That was a project that you actually had to build a maquette.
2: That's fantastic.
1: Um, so that combined with actually having a drafting program as well, like I just had this kind of, um, foundation. I, I just, I actually applied as a designer to, um, theater schools, which is unusual. So I think at at York, most people are applying as a performer. So I applied as a, a, design student and uh, decided to go there because I wanted um, kind of a broader education. Mm-hmm. And I was at York. And as York does, York goes on strike. Right. So I was in a production class. And uh, theater never stops. Doesn't matter if there's a strike. We told production classes. And they announced that uh, there was a theater in Oakville, the Oakville Center. Mm-hmm. I was looking for an assistant stage manager or a stage manager or something, some volunteer. Mm-hmm. And I, like, despise stage managing. Right. It's not my interest, but I thought, okay, I'm going to do this because I live in Oakville. It's where my family is. Um, And it's just an opportunity. So I'm just going to do it on this kind of break from school. And I met Jennifer Jansen. And Jennifer Jansen said to me, I think you would do really well at Blythe. Why don't you apply? I was still in, I think it was my second year. So I had very little knowledge of what Blythe was or the history of Blythe. So I applied and uh, I got this strange phone call saying, can you use power tools? And I lied and I said, yes. And uh, I got this job as the, the production assistant carpenter. And that's kind of the beginning of all the relationships that have kind of formed my career.
2: That's incredible. Jen yeah. Jensen, of course, was the stage manager. I think she was the production stage manager there for a couple of years.
1: She might have been. Yeah, uh, but, but she but was definitely around there. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, a big part of the reason I got the job because mm-hmm. she recommended, she said, yes, this person is capable. Right. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and who hired you? Who um, I'm trying to remember. Well, the TD, uh, Doug Morham and Dave Surrett oh, right. were the, the people there. So I'm not sure if it was Doug that spoke to me or if it was Dave. I can't remember. But
2: uh, Can you use power tools? Sounds like a Doug question. Yeah. <laughs> so that I think that is probably appropriate. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. And so you end up in Blythe. Yeah. So you grew up in Oakville and Blythe this is this little teeny town.
1: It was. Uh, yeah.
2: Blood is a is a famous theme. Famous theme. It's a theme on the podcast as well. I've talked to lots of people, mm. uh, pro- probably because I uh, <laughs> went there. I was there for like seven or nine seasons, so I enjoyed Blythe. What was your first experience when you got there? Like, uh, what was your impression of the place? And oh and tell us what you worked on.
1: Well, uh, the impression was interesting. I did actually. I think I went to visit with my mother um, to see just what Blythe was, and discovering that like I don't even think there was a bank machine then. Um, It obviously was not a liquor store, the small grocery store. But I remember my first night there, I was staying, um, I was billeting in a house, I believe. And I hadn't planned that it was a, a holiday and I didn't bring any food. So all I had was a loaf of banana bread that my mother had made me. And that's all I ate. For the whole day, was this like one loaf of banana bread? That's a cla-
2: that's a classic that story because everything was dead, was closed. That's great. So that was your visit. Was, I, yeah. yeah, There was nothing open. Now the, the whole place has changed. Now in the last fifteen years is quite incredible.
1: It, it has remarkably changed. I mean, the liquor store was the beginning the, yes. that you could buy liquor in the grocery store, and then all like I, I, it's unrecognizable now.
2: And then when did you actually start? This was what year was this? Two thousand and
1: I think it what, was two thousand and two. I think mm-hmm. I. I have I struggled to remember, but it was the, definitely the first year that the Donnelly series that Paul Thompson did right. happened because that is the first project I worked on there, right. which was huge. Yes.
2: It's quite, it's quite your introduction to theater. It's outdoors. It was. It was collective. Yes. It was very non-traditional.
1: Non-traditional <laughs> and um all, it was all over the the town. Right. So not only was it outdoors, but you got to go into all these strange buildings that you had never would never get to go into in, in this small town. It was it was pretty unique experience, and um, it kept me going back. I mean, I did all three years. Right. So yeah, it's incredible.
2: And then you returned to the strike was over. Uh, did, did they did they come back in the fall uh, when Who? you were at York?
1: Oh, I don't remember. It was a really long strike. It was over Christmas that they st- the, the strike happened. Um, and I remember, you know, we were just waiting. It was in the fall and we were just waiting to find out if we were going to come back right before Christmas and they finally canceled it. So I think in the new year we ended up starting again, but it was a really long strike. Yeah,
2: That's so. not unusual up there. I know. Um, did you work with Joe Henning at Yokeville Center? Was he around?
1: Not that I know of. Oh, okay. He might have been, but I, I really had a brief role on that show. Right. And my main interaction was with Jen. With Jen. Yeah.
2: Well, she's awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. So you get through. What, you, what was your experience at York like? You after the strike came back, like you. It was a. Um, it's a mix of a studio and an academic program. Uh, what shows? Do you remember the shows you worked on? Or I worked on to... a,
1: a variety of shows, um, uh, from anything from the sound tech to carpenter to. Um, you know, you get a, you get put on whatever crew they deem. Um, and then in your final year, you can design. And I did um, design a show that I'm now blanking on the name of. Um, I did the costumes for it. And that that was a strange circumstance because I actually hadn't pursued costume design in New York. Um, I was much more set design. And um, they always encouraged you, said, you have to do two designs. At least, you'll never get a job. Um, so I peripherally did uh, costume design. And then I got the costume design in my final year, but I wasn't taking fourth year costume design, which apparently is not allowed. So you have to do both. (laughs) And so I had to end up doing that as an independent study um, to get that credit. It was very confusing, but it was was an interesting kind of um, circumstance that pushed me into costume design that um, I suppose has helped me because I've done a lot of costume design now, Um, a lot more than I do just set design. I do a lot more just costume design.
2: Uh, Many of the costume designers I talk to tend to have a um, sort of a long love of clothes right from an early age. So being thrust into that without having any notion of really wanting to seems a bit uh, different. But uh, what's your relationship with like, did you find it was easy to adapt that three-dimensional thinking to a different, to to the human body as opposed to um, designing for the stage? I
1: suppose. I I always feel like I still struggle with costume design in some ways. Um, I, don't, I don't enjoy sewing or the creation of costume. I always joke with my mom that I paid $50,000 to learn how to sew because she always knew how to sew, wanted to teach me when I was a kid, and I could not care less. And I went to university, and I had to learn how to sew. Um, so it's not, a, it's not something that I feel at home with in that I could uh, produce costumes myself, whereas I, I do actually feel at home building objects, things, structures. Um, so the, what I find, w- how I relate to costume is I actually really enjoy people, and that's why I do a lot of theater. I love anthropology. I took anthropology classes in, um, in university. Uh, so I find myself more interested in the study of people and our relationship to clothes than actually fashion or um, anything like that. I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not on into the fashion scene that heavily. Mm-hmm. So.
2: And, and why should you have to be? I mean, a lot of the stuff is, is con- I mean, you do contemporary work, but there's a lot of period work as well and interpretive work in theater. So you don't really yeah. have to be.
1: No. And I don't, I don't think that a lot of shows relate heavily to fashion. Mm-hmm. They relate to people right. and everyday circumstances in real life. And um, I, I do find that interesting as I've gotten, I, there's a myriad of shows, of course that you do and you, your mind opens up to all different aspects of clothing so I have gained a stronger interest in it. But it was always a little bit alien to me, um, that clothing as something fun.
2: <laughs> Excellent. And so you come out of York. Uh, they finally let you graduate after the strike and everything. Yeah. And I
1: think there were two strikes, actually, while oh, I was there. Oh, God. Yeah.
2: That's, uh... I think in
1: my fourth year, there was a strike.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. If only they treated their workers better, right? Eh? I know. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that's... They had a strike a couple of years ago. Yes, uh, Now as well. My goodness. Um, so you come out of uh, York and you're obviously focused on being a designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your, did you get the, did you start designing right away? How did you transition into the professional world?
1: Um, it actually happened a lot while I was at school. So it all began with Blythe. So thank God I went to Blythe. Um, I, and, and this is actually something I always tell people that I work with. Cause you, you meet a lot of people in theater that are doing another job, but are wanting to design. And so I, um, what I, and I was doing that. I was a carpenter. I met Victoria Wallace, who designed the Donnellys. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm actually studying to be a designer. That's what I want to do. I'm just here. And she was the first one to hire me as an assistant because she said, well, if you can make it big, I'm sure you can make small things. So she let me do model work in her house um, or, you know, like assisting her while she worked in her house. And, I, and she would just give me a model piece to do. And I... She would pay me by piece rather than by hour so I could take as long as I needed to make it. And that was a great first experience. Then, as the Donnellys went on, uh, I think in the third year, I became the um, assistant designer on it. So so Victoria didn't actually even have to come. I was just there to see it through. Um, So that was kind of my first beginnings of design. Um, But I also... Met people. So while I was in Blythe, I met Christopher Morris, who is my partner, and he is older and was in the theater world. And so through him, I also met theater people, one of them being Lorenzo Savoini, who so I met Lorenzo through Christopher. Lorenzo was a designer, spoke to him, and he said, "Why don't you come to Stratford uh, while you're still in school?" talk to the the heads of the design coordination there figure out what you need to do to assist here so i went in showed my portfolio and they said xyz this is what you know this is how you could become an assistant here and come back when you're done school right. so i did and they gave me a job That's the test. yeah
2: i think it's interesting that uh, in a in a profession that is all about Telling stories about relationships. It's also based on relationships. Like this is how everyone gets their work. It's very rare that people interview. Like I think I did one interview uh, in my entire career yeah. for a job, and most of it is word of mouth. Right.
1: It's all. I actually. I am convinced that I'm horrible at interviews because I've. I think the Stratford interview is the only time I've actually been interviewed and received a job. Every other interview I've done, I have never received the job. So every job I've gotten was because of relationships or someone has seen my work or whatever, whatever the connection is, it's not a cold interview right. ever.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now were you, um, so you were assisting at, uh, at Stratford, uh, right out of school. How was, uh, how was getting into that machine? Like that was again, totally different than any other place that works. Um, certainly not Blythe, although they do share a rep. Yes. kind of philosophy, which yeah. is interesting. But uh, how was your experience at Stratford? Like what was the first show you worked on and and, uh, and how did you find working in the machine down there?
1: Um, I, th- I was very fortunate in my kind of transition into Stratford because I was straight out of school. I, I suspect they gave me a smaller show because of that to learn the system. They also paired me with Peter Hartwell, was, who was someone who knows Stratford and who had been there before. So uh, we worked on Orpheus Descending, directed by Miles Potter. It was at the Tom Patterson, and it was an amazing experience. It was so great. Not only did I learn a ton from Peter, but from all the artists at Stratford to just see people actually making shoes, making hats. And this straight out of school was kind of mind-blowing. And you also... um, you have to recognize what it is that Stratford is a unique place because then, uh, you know, the shows that I was doing on my own, I was like in my house trying to make all the props and make all the costumes. So you, you have those two things happening at once, which are quite interesting to see the different, the diversity of how work is created. Um, so that, that first show was a fantastic show to work on. And then my second year I also worked with Peter Hartwell. So I had like another relationship that was already established and, in terms of the machine, I didn't feel the machine. Right. Um, and I think that was of great benefit because I did feel it in my third and fourth season a, a little bit more. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just interviewed Peter Hartwell a couple, about um, a month ago. I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah. We had It'd a really interesting. interesting conversation. <laughs> Half of the conversation was, uh, it'll be, it'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks, but, uh, this'll be, uh, which for people listening on the podcast is about the middle of, uh, uh, near the end of June. But uh, yeah, he had a lot of, half of his career took place in England. So there's a whole lot of people that we don't know over here. Mm-hmm. It was a really interesting conversation, but he's a really down to earth guy uh, and a great person to assist, I imagine. Like he's a... Uh,
1: he was, he's, he's very meticulous uh, in his expectations of model building and uh, he does his own drafting. So that wasn't a part of it. And I did set in costumes. They now separate them, I believe, as assistants. But at that time I was just Peter's assistant. Right. And I think I prefer that method, but I know that for the system there, yeah. what they do now works. Um, his, his experience with costume is not as strong, or his, his confidence in his costume design. I would disagree that his costumes aren't strong, yeah. that he says those things. Um, but his confidence with it. So he's very collaborative and open um, when he works with cutters and when he works with actors, because he, he feels that he needs their input. And I think I learned from that, right. that openness
2: Yeah, I imagine that that those first few years where you're assisting, you're kind of generating your own process as well. Mm -hmm. Especially coming out of university, you have a process. You know what the process should be, but you haven't really developed your own work, right? Yeah. So, um, and how about, uh, so working with Peter, um, uh, any other designers you worked with at uh, Stratford as well?
1: I worked with Philip Clarkson on um, The Merchant of Venice. Uh And then the following year, it was... Des McAnuff's first show, which was Romeo and Juliet, so they they, they brought in American designers, uh, Paul Tazewell and Heidi Ettinger, did the Romeo and Juliet, yeah, and that how was my last season.
2: How did you find working with the Americans um, compared to Canadians?
1: Well, the the set designer was not around very much at all, and um, that that was fine. It was difficult communication-wise. It was difficult in trying to understand what someone wants when they're not there to see it. Um, what that was challenging and. Um, but Paul was Paul was brilliant to work with. He also, as much as he wanted to be there, was too busy. And he fully admitted, he said, you know, I I couldn't take this contract, didn't want to take this, not didn't want to, but was not available to take this contract. Um, but Des really wanted him to do it. So they they made all these accommodations for him and he would fly in for two days and not... What was really difficult was um, I was doing fittings and having to, you know, send photos with all the questions of the fittings, and it, like fittings would take a day because of the time it took to get the answers. Right. Um, so they ended up getting me an assistant to assist because of the the scope of the show was just so much, um, and the demands out of rehearsal were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, we had tons of blood. It was Romeo and Juliet, and you're like, why is there so much blood? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a really um, it was an exhausting process. I did learn, I I did enjoy working with Paul and I did learn from him as much as I could. Um, but it did wear me down as an assistant and that's why I did not go back.
2: (laughs) It was the show that broke you. Yeah, (laughs) it kind of was. Yeah. It sounds like an associate position more than anything else, which is not a position that's usually at Stratford.
1: No, it's, it's, it's not often there. I mean, the year before, um, I actually ended up being the associate set designer because the set designer quit on the first day of rehearsal. Um, but then once this thing happened on Romeo and Juliet, like there was no, it wasn't ever going to be that I was the associate. Actually there was an American assistant who I think got the title of associate and she basically shopped for fabric in the States and sent it. And I don't know the politic of how all that was decided, yeah. but it was a little crazy. Um, and in in retrospect, a very, Good experience, right. and I was already kind of ready to be done with Stratford going in, knowing that the fourth season was probably going to be my last. And then the the exhaustion of that year right. was it.
2: That's incredible. Um, you, know, I just want to touch on Christina Podibiak. You uh, assisted her on Mary's wedding at the NAC in two thousand two. That was part of your.
1: I just built a model for her. Oh right. Yeah, that's all I did. And it it was great because um I was actually working in Blythe at the time, so I built it in Blythe and she was around Stratford I think. Anyway, so um that was it and I, I wish I had uh would have assisted Christina on costume design yeah. at some point in my yeah. career. I still would assist Christina Fedevak <laughs> on costume design. Um but uh that that's what that was. Yeah. yeah
2: yeah yeah she i interviewed a couple of years ago. she was great to talk to um well that's excellent now how about um the uh, again lorenzo uh uh whom people have already heard me listen to or talk to um he spoke about the sort of changing atmosphere uh of assisting at stratford where it used to be there used to be much more of a legacy where you would you would You would assist people there, you would sort of work up in the machine, and then eventually you would come, or not machine, work through Mm -hmm. the process, and then eventually you would come back to design there. Now, you have come back to design at Stratford. Yes. Uh, Has that been independent of that process? Like, how how was that working in the early 2000s?
1: Well, I can tell you um, it wasn't associated with Stratford at all. It was all due to the generosity of Miles Potter. So Miles uh, was the director on the first two shows I assisted on. Um, I had a great time working with him, assisting him. It was just, uh, I wasn't assisting him. I was assisting Peter, but anyway, he was directing. It was, it was fantastic. And what happened, um, this is going back to how badly I do at interviews. I had been asked to design a show, um, but the artistic director didn't know who I was. So he asked me to come in for an interview. So this director wanted to hire me and I sat down in an office with, um, the uh, artistic director, and through the interview process, it kind of came out that I hadn't worked at very many large theaters. I think Thousand Islands Playhouse was the biggest show I had done, which is a small theater, and it's a summer theater at, you know, um, different scale, and this is a a theater in Toronto. So basically came out of it, said no to the director, saying she doesn't have enough experience. And so I went to Stratford, and I told Miles this story. Right. I just, you know, he said, well, how did the interview go? And I said, well, this is what happened. I don't, I don't have enough experience. And I don't know how, if it was a week later or two weeks later or what it was, but he came to me and he said, how would you like to design costumes for the graduate at uh, the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario? And what he had done, um, without my knowledge, was he had gone to Andrea, the production manager there, said, how do designers start? Like, how do they get enough experience? and she basically said someone has to take a chance you know someone has to be willing to just try and see and so that was miles's uh generosity that he just said you know what i think you can do it and it, to be honest it was terrifying like not only was it um a large theater the grand theater but Sonia Smiths was playing Mrs. Robinson. So there you have, you know, someone who has celebrity. And so I had to have, you know, pre-phone calls about costume design with her to make sure that the costume design was okay, the color choices were okay with her and stuff like that, which was a new experience for me as a designer. It wasn't um, something I had really known about doing Um so Miles took that chance and Miles had continued like throughout my career Miles has been a reason I have ended up in multiple places um and he's the reason I worked at Stratford he's the only director I've worked with there um and he has continually made the effort to bring me into new theaters uh, expose me to new people and yeah
2: that's excellent that's not an um, that's an uncommon theme in designers as well do they tend to follow directors around So that's great. Um, How is working with Miles? Can you tell us about that relationship and how he works and how you find that uh, enjoyable? And uh,
1: Miles, um, you know, we all know that every director is very different, and um, with Miles, particularly in terms of clothes, I I find him fairly hands off. Um, He loves seeing what you produce, but he doesn't necessarily come to you saying this is what it has to be. Um, So you you know you share. He looks at all the images. He looks at all the fabric says something you know we comment we we explore but it's um we talk a lot more about the play itself well i can always ask him about character he totally knows how to talk about character he's you know he's actor driven in a lot of those ways and that that's what you need as a costume designer you don't need someone to say what t-shirt you should go buy right (laughs) that's actually not usually that helpful um so he's he's great in that way and then i always joke with miles that if he gives me a costume note once we've done dress rehearsal, it must be really bad right. because he usually doesn't, like the best part is if he doesn't notice it right. because that means it's not a costume. It's just, it seamlessly is clothing,
2: right.
1: you know, depending on the show. But I remember, you know, uh, particular shows like Awake and Sing where it's um, in 1920s, 30s America, it should be fairly ordinary clothing. And so I remember he noticed a plaid shirt and he hated the plaid shirt and I was like, okay, we will change that plaid shirt. <laughs> Cuz if he noticed it, that's, you know, that's not good. Yeah, exactly.
2: And how did the graduate go? Like uh, tell us about the, your experience and and what do you, do you remember much about the show?
1: I do. Um I remember a lot about the process and um this is uh revealing of of kind of my I guess Uh, growth as as a designer I remember doing the drawings and I absolutely love doing costume drawings that's actually one part of costume design I love but I was agonizing over these costume drawings like they were not good enough they were never going to be good enough they weren't good enough and I was bawling my eyes out and I remember thinking that you know I can't do this job if this is going to be the process like it's too painful it's um I'm putting too much of my own value in something that is a piece of paper that's probably going to change. That's probably not going to look like, like it was bizarre. The, the amount that I felt my worth was in these drawings. So I learned so much on that show in terms of just that part right there of releasing myself from feeling that that was who I was as an artist um, and allowing the process of theater and the process of creation to develop. um, So that by the time we got into the creation Point, I didn't feel like I had to have all the answers. I think that's what it was, right? You do the drawing and you think you have to know everything, um, every element of it. And you know what? You discover a lot as you go and as you build and create and talk to cutters and talk to the actors and yeah. everything.
2: I think it's probably the greatest uh, lesson that you cannot learn at university that you probably, as a designer, everyone comes to is, is trusting the process and trusting your own. Uh, ability to figure out those problems as they arise rather than living with the ambiguity of what if it all fails? <laughs> right. Yes, like yeah. learning to trust yourself and, and people is probably the biggest thing to learn as a designer.
1: Right? Yeah. And, and the great thing about theater is you're not, you're not alone. You're never creating these things alone and you have all these people around you who, especially at that point in my career, had a lot more knowledge than I did. You know, I was one of the cutters on the show was uh, Joanna who works in Stratford and like She's a miracle worker. And so that right there answered so many of the questions about how this costume would look, what would be the right fabric, all that sort of stuff.
2: So uh you so that went very well though, the graduate, because obviously you came back to the Grand Theater many times Yeah after that. Like that was a great chance.
1: Right. Yeah. So this is um this is kind of what's happened. Miles has brought me to a theater um, like The Grand, and then they have supported me. So I was able to do multiple shows there, work with a variety of different directors, um, and they really helped me. And some of the stuff I did wasn't great, and some of it was great. And yeah. you know, um, the, But they allowed me that, um, that time and their resources to kind of explore very early, early design. Right. Yeah, That's
2: incredible. Uh, yeah, so you work with um, uh, Susan Furley, Michael yes. Dobbin um miles parter obviously uh and then uh and of course christopher morris whom uh you are partnered with yes uh how do you find your professional relationship with christopher how do you guys like obviously um because you share an intimate relationship as well mm-hmm. you must have a, a really great shorthand uh to we, work do together,
1: right? yeah. Yeah, we do now yeah we do now we've done a lot of shows and um a lot of the work that he does as a director is um not uh, not dissimilar to Paul Thompson's method of collective, but he's much more in, you know, will actually write a script right. Right, as opposed to the collective, sometimes wild uh, creation process. Yes. Um, but he is all into international creations, building things over, you know, multiple years, not just three years, sometimes seven years. You know, like these projects take a long time and he always includes design. Um, so... Uh, Michelle Ramsey has been the lighting designer a lot and she's been involved early on in the process. I've been involved and it's just um, it adds a deeper level. Like I don't necessarily think all the workshops I've done with him have necessarily created a design, um, but it is a a little bit of helping. There's a dramaturgy to it as well. Like there's um, you discover the, the visual kind of world or themes or things that help support the story but when it comes to the, the actually designing the show once the script is ready it's ju- it's just in you right. you know it and you're you know um what the story needs in order to be supported but then Christopher himself is also a certain particular style of design uh, director and uh, i remember for his show night there's t- like it's very episodic there's tons of references to things where you think you need a house you need this you need that and he's like i don't need anything I like all we need is a radio and we need a gun and we need a box of bones and you know so he leaves it wide open um in terms of how he because he's written the script he knows how he's going to direct the script and that has developed so his his subsequent shows have also had a similar style in that there's not a lot of realism and that allows that it does give us a shorthand we just enter um the the process that way and um it, it fits with my this kind of Leanings, I I love uh, installation art, and a lot of those shows relate to installation art, right. and um, yeah, it it does help. I mean, our first show together was hard, though. Right. I don't want to say that it's, it's perfect. Like when you're working with your partner, you you have to not involve your relationship, right. right? So it's it's not about the personal part. And you also, what we learned on our very first show together, which was "I am yours" at Equity Showcase which is one of my favorite shows because it was like, it was crazy. And, you know, that's one thing where you're at home. I'm like sewing bedsheets together right. and my mom is helping me. My mom's a big part of early designing, right? She's always there, hands-on helping me till midnight. Um, so we we did this show, I Am Yours. And what we learned was that we actually couldn't, we had to stop talking about the show at a certain point. Right. Like we couldn't go home and continue to talk about the show. Right. We had to actually have a life yeah. of our own that wasn't related to the show. And that was the biggest lesson we learned on that one. And we've been able to do that now when we work together. It's not all about the show all the time, right. which is very healthy. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes, I would expect that. That's great. Yeah. Um, awesome. So the Grand Theatre is not the only uh, place you've been to multiple times. Manitoba Theatre Centre... Uh, you've been to, was that another Miles Potter introduction? It sure was. Wow. That's crazy. Thanks Miles Potter. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've never worked at MTC. I, I, there's, I've lots of friends obviously that have, uh, and we haven't spoken to it a lot about it on the podcast. So I'm mm-hmm. glad you're here to talk about it. What was your first experience there? Like when did you first go?
1: I did God of Carnage there. Right. Um, I don't remember the year.
2: I think I've got it here. Yeah. Uh, 2012. 2012. Yeah. There you are. Yeah, yeah. So
1: not that long ago, only five years ago. So yeah. Only five years ago. Um, yeah, so I did do costumes for once over the Cuckoo's Nest, but I didn't uh it was first done in theater at Theater Calgary. Right. So I didn't go to Winnipeg when it happened. Um, but Miles did hire me to um do God of Carnage set and costumes at the main stage, um which I remember being particularly funny cuz if you know God of Carnage, there are four people in it. Oh yeah, it's it's small. It's a, like it's it's a it's a living room show. It's one set. Right four people. And then in the studio space, which is quite small at MTC, they were doing August Osage County. Oh, right. So it was a big joke about what? Yeah, why, are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> why don't we flip these, <laughs> these around? I know, um, Brian Perchaluk, who was designing that set was a little like, why am I doing the big show on the small stage? Right. I think it was Brian. I hope it was Brian. Oh my gosh. Um, anyway, uh, so we, that's the first show I did there. It was, Um, a brilliant experience it's a great regional theater in terms of um, not only resources you know they have a great shop and great people but well I think the people are actually what make it great so um, the props department is full of people who like have so much experience and I remember them offering things so you're from a different city. You don't know a lot of things. You don't know the means of the theater. You don't know what you, sometimes you don't know what you can ask for. Like I've learned now you just ask, right. but at that, sometimes at times you, you don't know what the options are and, and they would offer, say, you know what, like, I think what you want is actually this I, and I know where to get it. And right. so they would do things like that, which um, was brilliant. I just loved working there. I just, I found it very supportive and a positive place. And I've been fortunate enough to go there, I think, every year since that show, or maybe missing one year, I don't know. But um, it's been a constant uh, relationship that has been brilliant. It's kind of what happened with the Grand Theatre. They kept hiring me, and then I haven't worked at the Grand Theatre in a long time, and I'm still working at MTC. And, you know, I know at some point there probably will come a time when they won't ask me. And so I'm just trying to appreciate this period where they are asking. Yeah, That's a good
2: That's a good position to be in, I think, or a a good take on it, I think, because uh, things are so variable.
1: They are. You you (laughs) don't know. Can't count on much, right? No.
0: Hi there yeah i know this interview is going really well but before you skip ahead just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the patreon page for the title block it does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history and for a couple of bucks an episode you can ensure that i can continue to put out great interviews with designers like jillian gallo please go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now thank you for your help
2: how was it returning to stratford as a designer how did you find that experience after you'd been an assistant especially only within probably 5 or 6 years of leaving mm-hmm. right
1: well i think it was actually i i had no issues with it or like there was no um i didn't feel a certain way about it necessarily like i was thrilled to be there as a designer and to utilize the resources and everything um i the, the weirdest thing is that I, n- I was never sure how well I did with the assistants there, having been an assistant. And from what I'm told, I was a very good assistant. But I never knew if I was very good at working, like being a designer to the assistant. Like I wasn't sure if I gave them the right things or if they learned much. I, sometimes I felt like I was um, maybe still too young for them to learn from or something like that. But I don't think that's necessarily true. There's always, I think if, if you're assisting someone... There's always something to learn. I feel like I could assist people now and learn things um, about their process and their choices and just being, um, I think other people have alluded to this, that you never get to work with another costume designer. It's so rare. So that that opportunity to just observe how someone deals with a, a costume is is great. So that was my, always my one point of, of hesitation there. But I did love designing there and I loved working with the cutters that are just so brilliant in the props department and all that sort of stuff. Um, it was, it was a treat there. I, I loved it. And I think, I think the first show I did there was, was it Three Musketeers? Cause it was huge. So I, I feel like there wasn't time to oh, even right. think like the, the costume, they would, you know, put on a costume to run across the stage and they put on a costume to run across the stage. I was happy that I just knew the system of Stratford so I could navigate uh, all the things that if you're just walking in cold, trying to understand how to get something done can be can be difficult. So I knew how that worked. So I I feel like I had a leg up in that way. Yeah,
2: yeah I get the sense that uh, being an assistant at Stratford, uh, you're very much a traffic cop, yeah. like. <laughs> I need this. I need to have. I need to go. I don't know. Find some fabric. Okay, mm-hmm. we'll go talk to so and so and so and so, and then we'll schedule it next week for a buying trip. And then like that seems to be a lot what you're doing. You
1: know, it's interesting because I, there there is that part of it, and then I feel I don't know if it's changed. If it's become more, there's a formula now. But when I assisted there, I felt like we just went and did it. Right. You know, like what Peter and I would just. I think people were shocked. There was one time we went to Value Village and we spent like $1,000 at Value Village. And that, but that's what Peter wanted to buy. Right. So we just did that and it didn't matter and no one cared and really, um, and similarly with Fabric, we would just go and do it as opposed to waiting to like formally do the proper trip right. that you're right. supposed to do. But I think they now kind of make you do that. Right. I think we were just kind of, we were also doing the small show. No one really cared. Right.
2: <laughs> So, um, we don't, we, we've, we uh, I've talked about process a lot on the show, so we don't really have to go into specific processes, but where do you find your inspiration? Like, do you, um, are you a research-based, uh, designer or do you deal with, like, do you have your own kind of creative, um, uh, well that you draw from, yeah. uh, like, how do you find your ideas? And, and I'm
1: uh, heavily, heavily, heavily research-based. Um, so I t- spend a lot of time just gathering images and I like a ridiculous amount of time and, you know, too late into the night most of the times um, just finding images um, to work with. And a lot of them never come up again right. from the first time I look at them. And often even in the process, I, I forget about them, but um, there's something that just looking at images helps me define what I think of the show or what, because um, I, I like design to, to affect mood or feeling of, of an audience. I like it to um, uh, to impact their experience of the story. So it's uh, that's why I like installation art, because although a lot of people feel it's a cold um, kind of form of art and kind of weird and interpretive and all that, I, I actually have an emotional response to a lot of installation art. And um, that's so I use all these images of whether it be installation art or actual other set designs sometimes or... A lighting design, or a uh, you know stormy day, or something, whatever it is, they all kind of feed into um, what I consider like an emotional, a palette, uh, and then kind of work from there to to reinterpret that into the story that we're telling. Yeah,
2: uh, that's interesting. You mentioned installation art. I I remember having a lot of most of the good kind of gallery experiences. I recall are all the immersive. Non traditional, mm-hmm. like the the um, we when you learn a lot about art history, interacting with the with a painting or a sculpture, uh, is very much predicated on what you know about it. Mm-hmm. But in an in installation, in these kind of three dimensional space filling, uh, installations, you really are kind of immersing yourself in it, right? Yeah. And that's what we do, that's our vocabulary yeah. in theater. It seems like that would be an obvious. Uh, like, an, like, like, like that would be the obvious way we interact with the, with the art world yeah. would be through those kind of objects, right? I
1: agree. Yeah. Uh, there was a show um, that I assisted Steve Lucas on. I think there was the first show I assisted him on, which was um, DNA Theatre. Right. They did, um, I don't remember the, it wasn't, the, the, it's not, I don't know if it's listed on there. Okay. Um, but anyway, it was, it was in a house. It was in Hiller's house. And you traveled through the rooms of the house, and they had designed each room. And I remember the first like I still remember this, and it was so long ago. And there's a lot of theater that I've seen that I don't remember, <laughs> but this you walked in, and the 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 ground was real grass, and the the room was painted white, and there were birds flying around. And then the next room you walked into was a kitchen with food cooking on the stove, but it was really dark. And um, full of stuff and like knickknacks and things. Like you could spend so long. It looked like a meal had been eaten on the table, all that sort of stuff. And that experience uh, was a theatrical experience because there was a story that was happening inside me as I traveled through. And those sorts of things have impacted me so strongly. That's what I love. And some of the fun things that I get to design are when the audience gets to do some sort of more immersive experience. Um, going inside something or creating a set that at least comes to them in a way that uh, puts them somewhere else or, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: can you give me an example?
1: Of a design that's done yeah, that? The de- um, well, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a profound design, but the very first thing, um, I Am Yours at Equity Showcase, there's no theater there. Yeah. So we created like a box out of bedsheets and we made the box try to look like it was breathing and we did all these things. and the audience had to go in there's that one and then this is um, similarly we created a box but um for the last show i did with christopher um the road to paradise inside buddies we created a box uh that had metal walls and um sand or cork floor and part of that experience is was it partially to un like not 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 unsettle the audience but to remind them that they're entering something, a, a different space. And we played the sounds of Pakistan that we had recorded when we were there. And, um, you know, Richard Farron worked on that show. And and uh, it was, it, it, those things um, are unique experiences in theater, I guess, that sometimes you have a stage to work with and sometimes you can create the stage. So yeah. that's
2: it. That's great. I remember we did um, Peep Show. Steve Lucas and I yes. talked about this at uh, buddies it was the same kind of thing we had insta- different installations mm-hmm. um uh, yeah and I, that reminds me a lot of that actually that's great uh, so let's talk about uh, we've got about uh, about 15 minutes left so let's talk about do you want to mention anything about cuz you we we met first when you were in when you yeah. were assisting steve building yeah. models for him um th- what, do you want to t- talk about that relationship um before we move on anything you want to mention yeah
1: i mean it was just a, another great relationship in terms of learning i, I built models and did a lot of drafting for Steve, so it was mostly studio work. Yeah. And um, it, it's, again, just seeing the, the different ways people create and think. And Steve was always very generous and um, kind with ideas. And that first show, you know, taking me to a meeting with a, a director about this, um, the, the DNA th- Theatre show, like, it kind of... Oh, actually, no, I didn't work on... Now I'm remembering. I worked on I Know and Feel That Love is Something. It's a really epically long oh, title. Yes.
2: Okay, well, just for the history books, yeah, I have it here. Uh, it is. Uh, I know and feel that fate is harsh, but I am so loath to accept this. Is that that's right?
1: that's the first show I did with Steve, right? And um, I, I remember now. I went to see the DNA Theater show because of that relationship. Like that, uh, I uh, anyway. So we we worked on this show. The fact that he took me to this meeting with this really out there kind of theater group that was creating in a totally different way and exposed me to this. Environment. I actually wish I had done more on that show. I feel like I had the opportunity and I was busy probably doing something else and I couldn't be there, but that generosity of Steve was great because he didn't really know me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, great. Well, let's talk about, um, first of all, you've just done uh, an octor- octoroon. Yes. I have not I've never said that out loud before. Uh, an octoroon uh, at Shaw with Peter Hinton, uh, and uh, you just finished Louis Royale. Uh, which just opened at the NAC mm-hmm. last week. It's mm-hmm. the same show, obviously. It was. Um, so let's talk about both of those things uh, with Peter Hinton. Um, let's talk about An Octoroon. Uh, to give you, just give us a bit of a, a synopsis, if okay. you can. Uh, is this a, this is a Peter Hinton-written show as No, well?
1: he's not written it. Okay. Um, it is, uh, so we're still working on it. It okay. hasn't opened yet oh, okay. um, at the time of this interview. Yeah. Um, so Dion Boussacot wrote this play in the Shaw era time and he was actually um more famous than Shaw at the time melodrama but uh Brendan Jacob Jenkins an American playwright has taken this play and re-examined it in a way in a modern like w- with his own eyes but he's basically using that story to tell another story and so they're enacting parts of the octoroon which is the original play and he has written an octoroon so it's both modern and period. It's, um, totally it's melodrama it's totally outrageous but it is extremely poignant uh in terms of our relationship with race and with each other and our history and um it's a a fascinating project to work on and I'm like feel so privileged to to be the one because working with Peter is also a huge treat um he's a, a great director to work with um and so that's, yeah, that's what we're working on right now.
2: And we're not, uh, I mean, you're obviously in the middle of the process. So we don't want to mm. give too much away, but um, where are you heading? And what direction? You're doing both the sets and costumes. Yeah, I'm doing right? set and costume.
1: Yeah. Um, so, the very start of the play, um, just to give a taste of how extreme it is, you, you don't need, like, the, the stage direction of what the, the writer tells you to do. There's not a lot more that you can do to push the boundaries. <laughs> so, he begins the play with. Um, uh, what he says is a black playwright comes out, and he introduces himself as a black playwright. And then talks, talks, talks. He, and you learn that he's going to put on this play, but he has to play all the white characters, so he puts on white face. Oh, wow. And then Dion Busico, the character of Dion Boussico, the playwright, um, is a white man who comes on, and as he did in history, he puts on red face to play the First Nations character in the oh, show. And then he has, in in Brendan Jacob Jakins' version, he has an assistant, who is a First Nations person, who puts on blackface to play all the black men in the in the in the show, and then there are other people who are playing who they are. So you know there are black actors and there's a white actor, and you know so it, there are other characters, and they are actually all women. Um, who play themselves without putting on white or black face or red face. So that's like, that's just the beginning of the show. So you can imagine how crazy it is. So you're, you've got a modern person putting on this white face, getting into costume of a period. So we see him actually get into costume. That right there sets up an interesting costume. You can do whatever you want and, you know, we've accepted that it's a costume. Mm Um and they then they all play multiple roles within that, so he you know goes on and on uh the layers of it um but essentially you're taking it's an antebellum you know eighteen fifty nine setting, so with the costumes we've chosen to go strongly in the period direction, so we're we're sticking with period um i as i usually do there's strong color choices in it so that's kind of something I enjoy playing with. And um, the set, though, is extremely minimal and, in a way, uh, modern. So you're supposed to be at a plantation. You're supposed to be at a wharf. You're supposed to be, um, back at, like inside the plantation. Then you have to be at a slave quarters. You know, we don't have any of that scenery, but there are every every act of the show transforms. The set transforms, but it's not in a realistic way. So we've used. Um, art by this artist named Kara Walker, who does a lot of silhouette art and com- or, um, comments on um, kind of uh, black h- history and culture in America, and that's her art explores all that. So we've used her as a um, an inspiration, and yeah, it's a really interesting combination of period and modern that's in the script. Yeah. It's not imposed. We're not imposing it upon the script. Right. It's there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. It's um. I find that uh one of the things that theater does a lot. At least that I I mean this is how I designed is that I I'm not an auteur or I was not somebody who had these original ideas I drew a lot from other artists and other mm-hmm. disciplines and that's something that theater does a lot like there's a lot of plays that are based on the art of X mm. or during the production process we found these three artists that were basing our look on which is not I mean it's derivative but it's a reimagining or it's an inspirational kind of position to be in um how do you find having those, uh, I don't know, opportunities? Some, I mean, in this case, it's a, it's a restriction or a boundary that's set by the play. But how do you find being led down that path rather than being an original creator, as it were, or an original artist? Like, how do you manage that right. relationship?
1: Um, well, I guess that's, uh, that's what theater design is, like theater creation is, unless you're going to write the play. Yeah. You are, in a way, always given some sort of framework to work within. Um, And to be honest, I I actually, I love that. I love having the framework. I actually get squirmy when someone says to me, oh, it's set in no time. Because I'm like, what does that mean? I don't understand. So I like boundaries because I feel like that is, it's the same as when you say, oh, it's great to have no budget because it makes you more creative. It's like a boundary that makes you Decide something yeah. because you you only have certain resources at your means, so th- similarly, whatever the play gives you are your um, you could consider it boundaries or you could consider it opportunities mm-hmm. right so just different perspectives H- having said that, um, I w- would love and I you know it 's something I always have on my list of things to do is to actually take time to create something that is my own. Mm-hmm which is, um, for me, mostly about painting or drawing or something like that, that is not structured. Like, what do I have to say as an artist without the framework of a play? Is something I'm always considering. And I think even as I get older, it gets stronger and stronger because I, you're always responding to the work that you're presented with. And it's you need to have opinions and attitudes about it and, and a perspective on the world. And so it makes you want to even more have a perspective on the world that is your own and to, to get it out there. Right. Yeah.
2: That's interesting. Uh, and so it, it sounds like um, an obvious prelude to... And octoroon was Louis Rael in the setting of the Canada's 150 and the relationship with indigenous people and Métis and everything else. Mm-hmm. Tell us about, uh, in Canada, as it were, tell us about that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, uh, how did Peter, have you worked with Peter before?
1: Yes, I've done, um, King Lear was the first show I did with him at the NAC, which was the first all, um, Aboriginal production oh, right. of, of, a Shakespeare. Yeah. So it was entirely, uh, cast with first nations and, um, then I did uh, Thirsty, which was in their studio space, a smaller show. And then there was a, a few years kind of break. And then I did Louis Riel. So. Nice, yeah. <laughs>
2: like that. Yeah. Uh, and so how is that process? How, um, first of all, give us a synopsis of what, uh, it's an opera. Yes. Uh, what, uh, so do you know the, the um, librettist and the, and the composer? Like,
1: uh, Harry Summers is okay. the composer. Okay. And Maver Moore is the librettist. And there's um, a French... Uh, contributor as well, which I don't remember the name of. Okay. Uh, which I think because of the translation issues and the, there's French singing as well as English. Singing oh, I and all see. That, okay. You know, well
2: that'll be in the show notes for yes. people to look at. Um, um and tell us about this a
1: new opera. It was written in the '60s. Oh, I see. Okay, so it was Great. first performed for Canada's Centennial. They they, they they were asked to write something for the Centennial of Canada, and right. they chose. Louis Riel. So right there, as Peter often commented, is that the fact that they chose Riel to celebrate Canada's centennial is um, pretty remarkable um, because Riel is, and has been, uh, especially in the past, a very contentious part of our Canadian history as to how you view Riel and his actions. So um, that, but it had not, I think it had been produced in the 70s. Again, there was a show in Washington, but it's, it's not really done. This right. opera is not, you know, one that opera singers pull out that they yeah, know this right. opera. So right there, it was difficult because this the music is extremely difficult. Right. Um, I'm not, I don't know anything about it, but that's what they tell me. The music is really hard <laughs> for them to learn and sing and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's also, I actually did find it. I'll, I'll admit, I found it hard to listen to right. um, because it doesn't just go into the background like it it ass- assaults you at times. Yeah. So I'd be working and i all, you know, <laughs> jarred by this um, real music. But we spent um, over a year working on the show with Peter um, from early meetings. And if anyone has worked with Peter, if you haven't, there are times you're, you're meeting with him. It can be all day and you can never talk about design. Right. So you're talking about all the things in politics that have happened in the world right now what's going on. I remember black lives matter was going on um, in our early meetings and that was a big focus of some meetings and it's just, it's all about what he in a, in a beautiful way. And this happened on King Lear as well. um, He uses his, his designers in those meetings to help him develop his ideas. And he talks about a lot and, you know, there are times when I think, oh, he's got it all figured out. Why, like, why are we doing this? But then I realize, no, he's like, he is figuring it out and he is, um, working through it all and developing ideas. And then you'll come to the next meeting and you realize, you know, it's a week later and he's had like, I don't know if he doesn't sleep or what, but he's been thinking and thinking and thinking and has all these new things to offer. And, um, it's, it's really inspiring, and I love that as a designer. I know there are some designers that find it too much. They just want to talk about the design, and um, I, I I love it. And it's similar with Octoroon. There's I'm always learning from talking with him. Um, but Riel began very early, and a lot of discussion around the issues with the original opera were um, that it didn't involve... Métis or First Nations people and at the time it was a lot about French and English relations and that's what was happening in the 60s it was very present in everyone's minds and Riel himself um, you know is French and then there's the English in um, Ottawa trying to kind of go across the the country and create the railway there's there's this kind of burgeoning um, uh, capitalism that's happening and people wanting to produce and move and so that's what it was about then. But today you can't produce this opera in the same way. You just can't. Uh, so Peter focused so heavily um, on how to repair that um, part of the opera. Yeah, That's
2: interesting. Uh, and you're doing costumes on this, which is mm-hmm. really interesting because you started off with, like at the beginning of your career, <laughs> kind of reluctantly agreeing that, yes, I should do costumes <laughs> as well. And here you are on a major Canadian work Uh Designing only the costumes. Yeah. Um, what was the direction you took, and uh, how did you find your way there, and uh, and how, and maybe if you could put that in the context of how you changed your way you approach costume design in the last right fifteen years.
1: Okay, so I have to remember the first part of that question. Um, yeah,
2: general shape and direction yeah. of the of the current.
1: So, um, you know, with with Peter, it's all about you have these meetings, and I would just slowly build a bank of images. So we would meet, and I would as these ideas were coming and he was talking, even sometimes as he's talking, I'm like writing down the keywords and I'm a big fan (laughs) of just Googling keywords and the weird things that come up. I love it. And, um, so I would just come to meetings sometimes with a bag full of paper that would never come out. And it was all images I'd found. And sometimes they would come out and I would just like lay them out all over the table. And Peter just like hones in on certain things that resonate with him in the same way that they resonated with me. Um, so we that 's kind of how the costume and the the design developed, and um, we did what we ended up doing was really trying to there, there's a whole the, the opera's huge the number of people in it are huge there 's like close to thirty soloists alone. Oh my God. In addition to, you know, your chorus, which is 35 or 40, um, Peter added in a second chorus, which was the land assembly, we called them, which, which were all First Nations people, which ended up being close to around 20 people. Um, and, and
2: this is not the type of show you can go like to Houston Opera and, and <laughs> buy the chorus from their production of L'Oreal.
1: No, like. no. But what we ended up doing was this interplay between modern and period, and that was not out of necessity and budget. It was actually out of trying to understand this opera in our current context. So the, the chorus that sings became the parliamentary chorus of Canada today. So the people of Canada today, um, in terms of all different races, but all dressed in modern suits, and they're kind of commenting above and separated from the action. Right. The Land Assembly are were all First Nations people who um, were dressed in modern clothing, and were the people that Louis Riel was fighting for, essentially. So they are the, the people today feeling the, feeling the effects of this story. And um, that was very powerful in terms of seeing um, that Riel isn't one man fighting for himself. He's fighting for an entire group of people in the community. And it was a very diverse group of people. Métis, First Nations, Irish, um, French. It goes on and on. So um, there we have them. Then we have... Riel, his mother, his wife, um, all the people that supported him. And we decided to dress them in period clothing to to represent the history of the time, the the true circumstances. Um, and then the kind of strange other group was all the... Um, we have the politicians like uh, Sir Johnny MacDonald, Cartier. Then there's someone named Donald Smith who was uh, kind of leading the... Uh, the commercial part, um, representing Hudson's Bay company, oh, right. yeah. he, um, he kind of went between Ottawa and Winnipeg or what is now Winnipeg. Um, Sir John A. Macdonald never right. went West. Um, then we have Taché, Bishop Tachet, who also went between the two and was kind of, uh, sending information, I mean, you think about the time there's the travel's not as easy as it is today. um so we had that group of people, and that was it, and it has been perhaps the most commented on part of the production um because we chose to what we really wanted to do was separate them from the historical um representation, not necessarily historical, but show the the division between these two worlds right. that you've got um a people who are living on the land, fighting for the land, fighting for their rights. And the other ones who are coming in to try to take over and and uh, govern, and one simple and, and this is something that no one would know, but it was a it was a really interesting fact that at the time they divided the land, um, people who lived in the Manitoba area divided the land so everyone got a piece of river with long strips. Uh, the English came in and, and divided it like a grid which was very unfair because people couldn't access the river and all that sort of stuff. So this kind of idea of a grid and like lying things out became a strong image. And then we started to use it in the costumes of plaid and that sort of stuff. So we have Sir Johnny in this red plaid suit and that we tried to make kind of slick and, um, you know, t- fit to an, a current day aesthetic as opposed to a period aesthetic. Cartier was in that world as well. and But there's also um, in the opera itself, the music used at that time, uh, used in those sections is a bit, um, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't present Sir John A. in the, what we'd like to think of as our colonial kind of founder. He is a little bit of, a, um, uh, I don't want to, s- it's not, buffoon is not the right word, but he's, he's poked fun of in the opera in a lot of ways. And his drinking is commented on and things like that. So we kind of ran with that and, um, Really tried to divide these two worlds so
2: that's fantastic. Uh, did Peter have any yeah. um, besides the core, like the people in the in the cast, did he have any kind of uh, indigenous artists or, or people that he was working with to yeah. tell that story outside of that?
1: yeah, so um, Estelle shook, who was the assistant director, is metis herself um, then he uh, Peter insisted on bringing in actors to play particular roles um, and also to get any indigenous singers soloists involved as well so joanna burt who played sarah real is um first nations Um, but then he brought in jenny Lausanne, who became kind of a key figure this folk singer he kind of changed the role of this person to be the leader and she i think helped develop ideas Um, same with um our buffalo dancer, Justin Manyfingers. um, He did comment on things, and the choreographer for the buffalo dance is also First Nations. Um, And so there was was actually a moment. So I had an image of someone dressed in a frock coat, period, costume with a buffalo on their head, like a buffalo head. And we loved this image. We were going to use it for the buffalo hunt. Showed it to Justin Manyfingers, who is a buffalo dancer. That's what he does he's like, Oh, that's really colonial. Like we don't, we don't do that. We don't, we don't stuff animal heads and put them on the wall. Like right. he, w- he really didn't like it. And so it was not in the show. Right. And um, that's because that's not what the Buffalo dance is about. Right. And the original production, we wanted to get away from the fact that it didn't really properly use the Buffalo dance right. in, in the context that it should have been used. So we were, working on that and that was an important collaborator and we needed that input because we don't have that knowledge. Yeah. So as great as that image is, it doesn't serve. Yeah. Um, and so we just tossed it.
2: Yeah. And that's an essential, uh, I think, mm-hmm. thing of theater design. Uh, well, that's terrific. I just wanted to, to land uh, just as we end here uh, on the, your participation in the Obsidian Theater Company training program, because we spoke with Rachel Forbes, who people will have listened to already uh, about her experience and really this opened her up to her career Mm -hmm. uh, as a designer Um, and how how was your uh, like there's not a lot of besides assisting at Stafford and Shaw or hustling your own kind of assistant um, Mm -hmm. positions uh, there's not a lot of formal um, uh, apprenticeship programs in Canada and this is I guess one of them how was your experience working with young designers and uh, and and prospective designers and how do you feel uh, what do you feel is important for them to learn, and how did you bring that to that experience?
1: Um, I, I love doing it, and I've uh, every experience I've done with Obsidian's program has been very positive. And I, you know, what's weird is that sometimes you never know how their their experience was. Like yeah. they say it's great, and but I, I don't know. Um, and what I all I do when I have an assistant is try to be as open as possible to either answer their questions or just tell them things as I think of them. Uh, but involve them also in every aspect. So I remember the last <laughs> um, Obsidian mentorship, um, Janille St. Clair was assisting me. And we were building this model and it was like tedious and really difficult. And I think it kind of drove her crazy. Like she was going crazy. And the, cra- the, the worst part of it was that we built this, all these like, we were building mini flats. And it was just over and over and over and over and over again. And then we decided to build the set in a different way and it, we got to cut those like oh. we're all cut. <laughs> so I think that was a brutal, like she, when I told her just like uh, face dropped, I was like, yeah, so we're not using those anymore. Um, which I think is a great lesson of being able to to not be precious with ideas or um, things that you've spent hours and hours and hours and hours on. Um, the one thing that I've found, I keep recently telling, cause I, I have had a few assistants. I don't, I guess I didn't list on there. Um, Uh, Tanya Grieve, the stage manager, works... What school is she at again? George Brown, is it?
2: Uh, She's at Humber, I think. Humber,
1: yes. Uh, So she uh, set me up with someone recently to also assist. So she came to my studio and we're talking and, you know, she brought up the fact that they're constantly told that you can't make a living as a designer. And I don't like... Uh, Perpetuating that story. And the reason I don't like doing it, I I understand that you want to give people a realistic perspective on the lifestyle you might lead and the choice that you've made. But I think it also sets up the belief that you don't deserve to be paid more. So if you tell people in school, you know what, you're never going to make money, this is, you're going to be poor, like just accept it. And sure, you weed out the people who don't want that life. Great. But then you've got a group of people who are willing to be paid. What, less than they deserve yeah. and I so I was very adamant to her that you know what you actually can get paid yeah. and you can be paid decently you're not going to of course be a millionaire from this yeah. job <laughs> very rarely does that happen but um I think you can make a good living yeah. and it is possible it's not easy and there are of course but that's the same with any job yeah. like there are sacrifices and choices and there's there you just have to be aware of the choice you're making but that is the one thing i try to say to people that you know what don't accept being paid less because you think that's just the way it works
2: and that is a great optimistic note to land on a <laughs> rare optimistic note at the end of the talk thank
0: you very much Gillian. it's great to talk to you thank you, thank you. that was designer Gillian gallo speaking to me from toronto in 2017 Next time, a special presentation of a conversation about the history of 1837, the Farmers' Revolt, recorded at Blythe, Ontario, by a friend of the podcast, Beth Cates, this past week. After that, a conversation with Siobhan Sleeth. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers. Or listen to it while you make an innumerable number of model 4x8 flats for a very complicated show, just to have them cut a week before the build. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block.
2: You did The Red Priest. Recently. did uh, you do The
1: Red Priest? At Alberta Theatre Projects. Oh, terrific. Who was in it? (laughs)
2: <laughs> was Mieko Ochi in it as well? Or? No, she wasn't
1: no. in it. Alison Lynch played the violin. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Jamie, I'm trying to remember her last name. Konchak, uh-huh. I believe, was the woman. And oh, yeah. then we had a change of cast at the very last minute for the man. Right. So I'm struggling to remember his name. Oh, that's okay. Because it was so last minute. Uh, but it was the original. Ashley came. Oh, Ashley came did. Came back it. And oh, great. It. Yeah.
2: I did the Red Priest in Toronto. Oh, interesting. Um, at the with Ashley and Rob Jenkins, Rob Jenkins, Ron Jenkins directed it and was in
1: Ah, the toronto
2: production because they had just done it and in alberta where was it it was probably alberta theater projects that atp i think did it originally they did yeah so 90s i think yeah so they did it there and then it got brought to toronto that's where i first met ron and um uh david beckler did the set Uh uh-huh i have pictures i can show you pictures